Hello and welcome to the MadeCast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in a time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Miles. I'm Chen. And I'm Red. This week, Alex is sitting down with Tammy Borowick, one of the writers and programmers of Monkey Island 2. They talk about her transition from college student to working at Lucasfilm Games, uh, LucasArts at the time, uh, using Scum Engine, and the overall experience of working on Monkey Island. But before we get into that, we have uh, limited news announcements for this week's episode. So... A game that I've been that's been in the back of my mind and got recently uh, rebrought to my mind is the the space equivalent of Monkey Island Two, Star Citizen. Uh, <laughs> Star Citizen is a uh, gigantic space sim, uh, which one of the things that really enticed me on actually checking it out was the fact that there are giant ship sized like spaceship-sized ships where you actually need a crew to fly. And I thought that was really cool as long as you have, as long as you're playing on something larger than a 24-inch screen. Um, you're, you're just staring. It's like you're looking out the uh, the airplane window for your entire time playing the game if mm-hmm. you use something that small. Uh, but Star Citizen had their most, uh, uh, their highest money-raising year last year. Uh, they surpassed the $350 million uh, crowdfunded uh, as of this time, which is a remarkable achievement. Uh, some people have been criticizing them on their lack of announcement and development for what they've been doing, but they've steadily been working on everything. Uh, their kind of main story line that they were going to release, like the story section called Squadron 42, uh, they're still waiting on announcements and news about that development. Yep. But we'll get back to you in another couple of years uh, with the next update. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, okay, yes. so it, it first was announced for crowdfunding in, I think, 2012. And, you know, uh, I gave 2010. 2010. Yes. Really? No, 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 no. Sorry. Production was, uh, the game was announced in like 2010. And then the crowdfunding, crowdfunding didn't opened start in until 2012. 2012. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in college in 2012 and just, you know, shelling out 10 bucks because screw it, why not? But, yeah. um, you know, nine years later, uh, <laughs> hearing about people spent shilling, shelling out hundreds of dollars on virtual spaceships for a game that doesn't technically exist yet, um, to me is kind of remarkable. Like, yeah. Chris Roberts and the team over at, uh, what is it, Stardock, Space Dock? I can't um, remember the name of their company. That's something uh, I should know. Um, it's okay. They're, like We'll get back to you in a second on that, but continue on. Yeah, somebody the market is changing. The market is really changing. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that they're doing something right because they're so funded. Like, people want this game. So there's something about this style of game that people are just like head over heels for and they're willing to pay big money to get it. Yeah. Uh, the people over at Cloud Imperium Games... Uh, Close enough. <laughs> yes. 
no uh we, yeah the it's a there is a little bit of flack with that apparently during the like the deep freeze down in texas mm-hmm. um with how they were handling but i i don't know too much into that it was just i mean everybody was having a tough time uh but well, the game is supposed to be one of the uh, as far as like con- conceptually uh, it's right up my alley of space sim that you can actually that has a deep lore and story to it that is like involved uh where you can meet people freely mm-hmm. um so yes the space monkey island too uh, <laughs> uh the the only other piece of news it was a correction of last week maybe not uh, whether it got cut or not, either way, I'd like to correct myself. Uh, we were talking about uh, at least the new Pokemon games announced, uh, how they were remastering Diamond and Pearl. Uh, but I I didn't realize until after we recorded the episode that Legends, Pokemon Legends Arceus, was the, the Breath of the Wild style Pokemon game that everybody has been wanting for years. Well, theoretically. So it'll be, for me, that's another big pull for me to get a switch but you know also just getting more exposed to more well, nintendo titles because i feel like i have been lacking in my exposure my gamer experience just told me it's too early to be happy about it yet i was gonna say the same thing yeah <laughs> I, yeah no i mean so like so what cyberpunk insert other game no man's sky at launch uh anthem <laughs> listen we're all just like, jaded old gamers now i i know i try to get, i try to hold hope i like getting excited about things and it's like it's fun to be excited yeah and even if your hopes get let down it's like that that excitement is still fun yeah i don't know I mean, i'm just trying to grasp onto any sort of happiness left in the world <laughs> just, we should we should be optimistic yeah exactly until we're proven I mean, wrong like well, yes. I mean, just just the fact that it's not like random Pokemon encounters, like you're just you can see the Pokemon in the field across the way mm-hmm. and choose to not approach. I, that that initially, I was like, okay, there's hope. There's hope. Or you can <laughs> stealth up to a Pokemon, which I think is next yeah. Level. Just crawl on your belly, just up, and then just like <laughs> startle. Like you jump out of the bushes and startle it, and you and you essentially get him stunned or surprised. Well, so like my my biggest Pokemon. reason for this kind of consideration is I have almost never heard of Game Freaks doing this kind of huge open world three D stuff before, and so this far is... they have. A... This, Sorry, go on. this could be probably their first one that they're really doing it because I I know in Sword and Shield they they're somehow faking it. It's not yeah. really very open world, and the size of the map is not satisfying for a lot of players I know. Yeah. So it will be quite challenging for them to pull up something like that, like in a Zelda Breath of the Wild scale for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I'm just hoping that they, because they're in, in Nintendo house, they'll be able to get help from some breath of the wild developers on how to expand their world and do that thing but we will see yeah uh, we shall see but i think it's about time we throw it over to alex and tammy borowick where they talk 
yeah, they talk. Uh, <laughs> Where they talk Monkey Island. Yeah, they talk Monkey Island. They talk Monkey Island too, and just their that whole experience. Uh, and another lovely talk about what it was like with Lucasfilm Games or uh, Lucas Arts, rather. Uh, and here it is. Hello, and welcome back. I'm here with Tammy Borrowing. Tammy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, we're happy to have you here, Tammy. Now, I, you were at Lucasfilm Games, thus, I guess it was LucasArts at the time, and worked on uh, Monkey Island 2. How did that happen? <laughs> it was kind of a long story. Um, so I, w- I was there both during LucasArts as well as Lucasfilm. Um, I was hired under Lucasfilm, and then it changed. Um, I started there not being a gamer, which was kind of an interesting twist for somebody in the games industry. Um, I came straight from college, and I was a communication major with computer science emphasis. Yes, you went to Mills College, where my wife also went. Oh, really? Oh, that's yes. awesome. Well, we'll have to talk later about that and what year Absolutely. she is and all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. yeah, so Mills Mills is a historically woman's college. And, you know, here here's the games industry, which is many men. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually didn't think I was going to go into the gaming industry. I wasn't a gamer. And in fact, I had barely played games since I played Pong as a kid. And... I um <laughs> <laughs> How did you come to Lucas? I mean, how did you even put in an application there? I went to the career center and found an internship in the files. And I knew I didn't want to be an intern because I was graduating, but I thought, well, it sounds like a really interesting place to work. So, <laughs> I wrote them a just a generic letter that said I'm interested in PR, advertising or marketing. And here's my information and here's my resume. And it had nothing to do with gaming. And at the end of that week, I got a phone call from them saying, um, hey, do you want to come work in the games division? I was like, "Uh, maybe. I don't know much about games. I'd, I'd love to know more. Is there any way I could get a sample of the games? So they sent me, they sent me three games they sent me Loom, Zach, and Maniac. And of course, they were all PC games, and I was a student, so I had used the student discount on Mac, and <laughs> we didn't have PCs on campus. So I had to go find a, a computer center that I could rent time. And I played the games at the computer center, and by the time I finished, I was there for, I don't know, three or four hours, maybe. And by the time I finished, everyone at that center was gathered around my computer. Try this, do that. (laughs) And it was just so much fun. So I called them back and said, yes, I'm really very interested. And one thing led to another. Um, I will say at the time, my college, Mills College, was going through a very turbulent time, uh, which they had made a decision to become a co-ed college. Ah, and yes. it made national news that this, the students, faculty and staff and alums had all shut down the school. We had a strike. And when I was interviewing, it happened right at the time that I was interviewing with all these different companies. And at that time, all of my interviews would ask me 
horrible questions, very sexist questions about like, well, can you work with men? Do you hate men? <laughs> and some of them really were not very um, hidden. They were, they were pretty outright. Jeez. And when I went to my interview at Lucasfilm, one of the things that really endeared them to me is I sat down with the, the other programmers who were already there and we had a real conversation about it. And we talked about the pros and cons of single sex education. And it was really, it was really endearing that they were really listening. And, you know, whether or not they agreed was a different question. It was just a conversation. And I really, really liked that. But I also like the idea of working on stories and being very creative. That was kind of the short story of it. <laughs> I believe you had also, you'd studied computer science at Mills. So you had computer programming skills. I mean, that was probably- I did. I helped, did. Right? <laughs> yeah. I was a communication major with computer science emphasis. And I, I was pretty close to having a minor in a computer science class. Um, I think I needed like one more class for a minor, but I was like- then I would need a new emphasis for my major. So <laughs> um, when I was there, it was a very strong program. Um, the, uh, yeah. the head of the program, who I actually worked for while I was a student, um, she was actually on an educational board for Apple Computer. Wow. And yeah, so that was really interesting. And, and like our campus was one of the first to get the next machine, if you oh, remember wow. that machine. Yeah, absolutely. We have some in the collection. Yeah. So it... It was actually a really good program. And, and being a small school, we got a lot of very one-on-one um, -on -one type instruction. And my classes were like eight to 10 people. And sometimes the professors were in each other's classes as students too. That's amazing. That's yeah. great. That sounds like such a great environment to learn about computer science too. It was, it really was. You know, that said, going from that into a business environment, I didn't know what to expect. I had never worked on a DOS machine. And Lucasfilm was all DOS. So it was, you know, it was a bit of a transition um, that way. I, working with men for me wasn't a big deal. <laughs> no, certainly. But it seems that, uh, so if you were at Mills on, you were on Macintoshes and Next Machine. So what, MetroWorks Code Warrior and stuff like that? Um, I actually wasn't on the Next Machine. I helped set up the Next Machine when we okay, first got yeah. them. But gotcha. I actually wasn't, only graduate students were allowed to use them. <laughs> but I, I was on Macintosh. I was also on um, Unix. Um, oh, okay. I'm, I'm and, sorry, uh, the, dev, the dev tools for the Macintosh were called uh, like Code Warrior at the time. I'm wondering. If you oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think, I'm trying to remember, most of my classes I programmed on the Unix. Um, okay. I think I had one or two things that I programmed on, on my Mac. Um, yeah, Dev Warrior. That does sound familiar. I just remember the bomb coming up over and over on my Mac. <laughs> the sad Mac. <laughs> because sad I Mac. because I was going into the registry and I was doing you know things mm. that you weren't supposed to be doing and yeah yeah so I, <laughs> I was doing like Pascal and assembly language wrote my there own compiler. So when you went to Lucas and started working on Monkey Island, that was. That was the Scum Engine, which was a much more sort of English language programming environment, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, was that, what was that like? Was that the first time you'd even encountered something that wasn't just, you know, gobbledygook like Pascal in a programming language? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you know, for me, programming really was very logical. Um, I'm kind of that weird combination of tech and like right brain and left brain, tech and, and creative. And so like the idea of pops and pushes made sense to me in a very logical way. But yeah, going into Scum, where you actually tell an actor to walk to this point, it was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it took a while to learn. Um, I was in Scum U um, for, um, it wasn't exactly my first month we had. it. I started right as a few of us, a few Scum programmers started all at the same time. Um, but some people needed to finish their schooling for a couple of weeks. Mm. So I got there earlier than other people, and I had some time to just play games, to learn more about gaming <laughs> and mm. game design. Um, and then the group of us all went into Scum U. And the interesting thing about my Scum U class was we were given art assets that were Sam and Max. But this mm. was not when the Sam and Max game was made. Sam and Max game was made by people who were in my Scum U class years later. Oh, interesting. I, I know yeah. Sam Max was always kicking around the offices there, like some kind of internal mascot for, for a while there, wasn't Yeah, there? well, because Steve Purcell was there, and <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure how they decided to get him to to donate his uh, his artwork to our Scum U class. But the first <laughs> the first um, puzzles that are in the actual Sam and Max game that went out to the public mm -hmm. came from my class. Oh, wow. That's neat. Yeah. What a neat little... Uh, yeah. So... So you get through Scum U, and then they're like, okay, you're on Monkey Island now? No. <laughs> um, what did I do first? I, I, uh, I worked on, there was a demo disc coming out that had three games and a system. And there were four Scum programmers who started at the same time. We were called, the, the first group of Scum programmers were called Scumlets. My group of scum programmers was called Scum Babies. Scum. <laughs> um, the next group was Scum Brio, and I can't remember what we decided to call the group after that. <laughs> um, so the Scum Babies, we were all assigned to do this demo disc. Um, and there were four of us, but there were only three games. So how do you figure it out? So we decided, well, one person will do the system. And then the other people will work on the games and then we'll go from there. And we literally drew toothpicks to see who would get the system. <laughs> Guess who got the system? You got system? <laughs> I did. That was all me. Um, which was really funny because I was not a system person. You know, here I was my mm. first time on DOS computers and now I'm, I'm programming a system and it was not so easy for me, but it was a really good learning opportunity. Mm. Um, and the good thing about it was it didn't take very long to get it done. Oh. And so once it was done, the question became, okay, what do I work on now? Mm -hmm. So Monkey One was still being worked on. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they had me help the person who was working on the Monkey One part of the demo. Because, you know, working on a demo of a game that's not done can sometimes be difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that. And then they had the two of us help with the actual Monkey One game. 
And so if you look at the credits for Monkey One, my name is all over the credits for like really weird things. I, think <laughs> I did testing, I did artwork. Um, I made design suggestions. Um, <laughs> it was the best education I could have had though, because they were still working on it. And mm -hmm. part of what was happening was Ron and, and his crew were looking at how we played the game. So they would stand over our shoulders at time <laughs> or we would just report to them. I, I remember sitting down in Ron's office every day on the couch at the end of the day and saying, here's the list of what we found. <laughs> and, and his question would be, what would you do about it? And so we got to start making design suggestions. And then That's he great. would explain why that wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them he actually used. But it was also really interesting because me as a, as a woman, I think differently than men do. And so I approached problems differently, both in the game design, but also in how I played the game. So, for instance, there, in Monkey One, there's a place where Guybrush goes underwater and he's hooked to a rope that has a heavy statue on it. And all around him are these sharp objects, but he can't quite reach them. <laughs> so he can't get out of the water. And if you stay down there long enough, you eventually drown, which is the one time you can actually die in a Monkey Island game, though it will let you come back and start at that same spot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it was interesting because I solved the problem in like two seconds. I was like, oh, well, obviously I do this. I don't um, want to give away the, the answer for no spoilers on 30. Yeah, no, no spoilers on 30 year old games. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I just immediately picked up the statue and walked away and got Guybrush out of there. <clears throat> the, per the other person who was testing with me he was trying for the knife and the blade and the, you know, the hatchet oh. and all of these things. And then he looks over and he's like, how are how did you get out so fast? And I'm like, <laughs> just think about it logically. <laughs> no, you could, you could say what the answer is. I was joking about the spoilers. <laughs> That's fine. I did. I just did. So oh, okay, there you, uh, yeah, you just pick up the stat. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to see like different people solving things in different ways. And, or trying to solve it in different ways and realizing that there's just a lot of different options out there and not everyone's going to find the same things easy and not everyone's going to find the same things hard. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I did that for a while. Um, artwork wise, I am not an artist. I will put that out there. But Monkey One went from being 32 color art to being 256 color art. Ooh, ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and all the heart, art had to be redone. Ooh. And so my claim to fame was I colored the dancing monkeys in the intro scene. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were black and white monkeys. They they had a white belly and they were black. And I had no idea how to do artwork and do contouring and shadows and whatnot. So I just I had like multiple shades of gray to work with now. So, you know, black outline, then a dark gray, then a light gray, and then the white belly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was that just a division of, was, when that decision was made to upgrade the, the, the artwork, was that uh, a contentious decision? Like, oh my God, now we have a ton of work we have to do. 
Um, you know, I really couldn't tell you. I was too new at the time. I was <laughs> okay, just no happy problem. to have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I wanted to, t- we're, we're, uh, we only have about four minutes left. So I wanted to make sure we talked about a few Ooh. of the other things. I mean, I know you, you did some electronics design and so forth and, and toy design uh, it, later on in your career. Uh, what sort of things later on in your career did you in- really get a charge out of? I mean, it seems like you really enjoyed the Lucasfilm days. Like w- what else later right. on? Well, and I should say, eventually in Lucasfilm, I I was an assistant designer programmer on Monkey 2. So I will put that out there. No, certainly, Um, certainly. (laughs) um, You know, I loved, I have two jobs after after Lucasfilm that I loved. Um, I really loved working at Humongous. Um, I was part of the group that left Lucasfilm to go start the company. And um, I felt like we really made a difference in the lives of kids. And we made a really high quality product. We had a lot of passion, still have a lot of passion. The the group (laughs) that worked there is still very active together. Still a lot of people work together. Um, The next place I went though was Fisher Price where I made um, electronic learning toys. And so I was working on all the content for what went inside the electronic um, content. Um, as opposed to the actual robotics and whatnot. And it was really interesting to help take a plastics company, a traditional plastics company, and help teach them about how to make engaging electronic products that can really tell stories and be endearing. Um, and Which, uh, which product, which product uh, were you most fond of out of that? Casey the Kinderbot. Casey he the was, Kinderbot. yeah. He was a little electronic robot that um, he had all sorts of animatronics, um, an LED screen, um, and I'm sorry, LED lights and an LCD screen. And he was the most complicated product they had ever done. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the very first product I got to work on there. So I was learning about toys, but I also was showing them kind of like, Yes, testing can test for pinch points and choking hazards and fire hazards, but it also needs to check the content. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so I, I'm saying, again, sorry to, to gloss over. There's so much more stuff you've done in your career, but it is only a 20-minute interview. But I did want to say absolutely the putt-putt, the, the you know, Freddy Fish, the Fatty Bears, all that stuff is incredibly – it resonated very well with the generation that you – brought that to and uh, i just wanted to share a story at the museum we worked with uh, the local library had a group that did adult reading programs but they sort of disguised it as i learned to read while my kid learns to read and that's exactly what we did we put in humongous games on computers and we were like all right go to town and they the parents and the kids played them together right and it was <laughs> this is 20 years after the games are released right but still still very effective at, at sort of a fun and engaging way to learn that's awesome. I assume you had the text turned on for that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because yes, the yes, default but... was not to have the text on. No, yeah, we, we... it's, it, they were, you know, I call them edutainment. Um, I think that's what the field called them at the time. Now they have a different name. Um, but yeah, they, they taught in a not very pound on top of your head sort of way. So it, it was really fun and interesting. I mean, I, I even, one of my games had a little math game in it and I was really worried it was going to be way too traditional math 
you know, type mm-hmm. context. I mean, it was literally doing, it, it had a starfish teacher and he was literally asking, what's one plus one? And we would show the equation, and, you know, what's three plus four? And, and I thought, I don't know if the kids are going to like this. But when we play tested them, the kids kept going back there to do more. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I guess we made it fun. That's awesome. <laughs> and y'all, y'all really cranked those out fast. You made a lot of those. We worked a lot of hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what passion will do. Uh, yeah. I mean, but you still enjoyed that time there, it seems like. I did. I really did. Um, it, it was very much a, a project of the heart for me. Uh, my mom was a school teacher and elementary um, uh, principal when I was growing up, and she had kind of talked me out of being a teacher, but I kind of found a different way to educate children, and I could reach more kids than she could um, by doing the game. So I I loved what I was doing. I was very passionate about it. It's very, um, very careful about the things that we were teaching and about how we taught it. Our characters had manners. Um, <laughs> you know, they didn't use swear words. They they apologized when they did something bad. Um, yeah. And it's a they were very well thought out from top to bottom. No, you know, casually thrown in things. Or, uh, <laughs> oh, there were some casually thrown in things. <laughs> <laughs> some of them were hidden behind I and I settings. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Um, so. Go go online, go find out which INI settings you can set and go see them. I think Pup Pup <laughs> can puke if he eats too much cotton candy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Yes. Um, That's but, probably a good lesson to learn, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you had to go and, and seek it out. You had to go find the INI setting. Mm. You had to know what it was, put it in the right place, and then play it. So it wasn't. <laughs> A four-year-old wasn't going to go and find that and their mom call us up mad. <laughs> no, and it's funny that you, you that, that stuff made it in there. Was that just not clipped or is that how you clipped content out? Why is that? How did that stuff get in there? We evaluated everything. Um, we would look at it and make decisions. You know, somebody, somebody would get bored one night and they'd make some little programmer art thing or one of the artists would be like, hey, I did these extra cells. What do you think? And we would decide, A, was it worth the extra time to get it all um, programmed up, add sound effects? You know, everything is a is a roll downhill, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not just, oh, I made extra frames of artwork. It's, well, that's great, but now it has to get programmed. It has to get sound effects. It has music. There's, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of testing. Mm-hmm. There's so many pieces. So we had to decide, was it worth all of the excess? Um, but also... Did it really fit with our company? And so we were we did cut some things that people did that were just not appropriate. <laughs> well, Tammy Barlowick, thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me. Welcome back. Thank you very much to Alex and Tammy for that fabulous talk. Uh, Monkey Island 2, I know, was uh, one of your favorite games, wasn't it, Miles? Um. Yeah, that one was a lot of fun. It, I still think the first one is for me sort of the best um, mm. of the of the Monkey Island games. Um, okay, but yeah, all those LucasArts games just really sort of stuck with me. I wish I would have been able to have a working computer to 
experienced more of the early games, I am now relegated to watching uh, streamers uh, play these older games and living vicariously through them, which is a new experience. A lot of the it's... a lot of the old LucasArts games, Monkey Island, uh, Full Throttle, um, Day of the Tentacle, mm-hmm. uh, Grim Fandango have had remasters, so they actually work on on modern computers. If you want to pick them up, I think they're on mm-hmm. Steam. Okay, so they're, defi- they're definitely the worth playing. They're a lot of fun. Definitely, yeah. Just to get a little taste of, get a little taste of playable history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, now that we are back on this side of the podcast, what have y'all been playing? I have just finished the Ori games, the Ori and the Blind Forest, and the Ori and the Wheel of the Whips. Both of them, I finished all of them last week. How how does the story? Um, does it? Does Will of the Wisp uh it, like advance on the blind forest? Um it's somehow advanced a little bit, but mostly it's a new journey for Ori and his new friend. Okay. But they did quite a lot of changes on the core gameplay in the Ori and the Blind Forest. They it's I feel like it's more like puzzle solving. They're less of the battle and the battle elements is less intense and less rarities but in the wheel of whips they really did a lot of improvement and advance on the battle system mm-hmm. and okay. of course the puzzle part is still there they make a special mechanics for each area just like they did for the for the blind forest one and it's yeah they both it's good. been yeah it's been a few years since I played uh, or in the Blind Forest. I haven't played Will of the Wisps yet, but I'm. It's on my list. I'm definitely going to because it's a pretty different experience. I actually surprised about that. I was like, because mm-hmm. if if you're playing Blind Forest, you you remember the battle is not too much a thing, and you just basically spam your spam yeah. fire. But yeah, in, it was the fire and the dash, and that was yeah, about in it. The, in the Blind Forest, oh, no, no, in the in the Wheel of the Wisps, it's totally different. You have way much more different ways to attack, and the enemies are way much more t- difficult to tackle. And their boss fights—I mm. mean, the real boss mm. fight—instead of running above the tree or something like that. Of course, the old, the old stuff are still there. The old kind of that running and puzzle solving stuff are still there. Uh, do you feel like the puzzle, uh, because of this like new elaborated battle system, do you feel like the puzzle solving got? Uh, a little less focus and was a little underdeveloped of what it could have been. Um, I feel like it's a it little bit, like a... a little bit easier than the first Ori game, or maybe just I played the two of them too close to each other. I basically just finished Blind Forest. Oh. Just an hour, I already turning on my way of the Whips. It's basically just back to back. So mm-hmm. I, f- okay. I feel like the puzzles in the Wheel of Whips, it's easier than those I have on the, in the Blind Forest. I, I mean, this game is also, I, I, I'm not fear spoil a little bit of it. In Blind Forest, you, there's a part you have, you have to running from a flooding tree, right? Okay. That part, I spend a lot of time doing that, just going over and over because it's so difficult for, for me when I first played it. But I don't see I have such experience in with the waves. I didn't I didn't spend that much time on just one stage like I did in the Blind Forest. And if I go to the end game, the very back end of 
the later part in the game, I basically just run through most of the stuff because I have a lot of stuff. I have triple jump, I, and I I have way much more skills, and I just okay. I can just easily control a lot of stuff. But if you don't have those stuff or you choose not to put them on, then it could be way more difficult. Okay. That's I mean. So it's like a choose your own difficulty throughout the game. Yeah, if by, you feel like it's like, too uh, easy, de-equipping yeah. equipment and abilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's, uh, I think that's about all we have for this week for you, folks. Uh, we want to thank Tammy Borwick again for coming in and talking with Alex about all of this marvelous Monkey Island Two talk and. Uh, just another taste of what it was like working for LucasArts back in the day. Um, but we want to thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at themade.org. We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Anthony. I'm Chen. I'm Miles. I'm Red. I'm Red. I'm and red. I'm Red. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Coward. Coward! <laughs> see you next time. Thank Come you. Come out! Come out and face me! Yeah? You just talk strong to the screen?